You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you don't like the sound of people breathing or chewing, you're not alone. You may actually have a disorder called misophonia, which is when you have an extreme negative emotional response to auditory stimuli. We don't really know whether that's because of dysfunctional signals in the neurons of the anterior cingulate cortex and insular cortex, uh, those are related to Tourette syndrome or whether it's from something else. But some people really, really don't like it when you pop your gum. So if you're doing that, maybe you should just not chew the gum because it's bad for your trigeminal nerve anyway. Today's guest is someone I'm really excited to have on the show. He's a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University where he runs the Trauma Research Center in the Kinsey Institute. His name is Dr. Stephen Porges. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina He's a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he, there he ran the Brain Body Center in the Department of Psychiatry. And he chaired the Department of Human Development and directed the Institute for Child Study. In other words, this guy's been studying things that make us go at very, very fine levels of detail for pretty much his whole career, and he's had a, a very, very distinguished one. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I only read like 10% of the cool stuff you've done here, uh, but you were president of the psychophysiological research, uh, and actually, I'm not even going to read all that stuff. A, a huge body of 20,000 behavioral scientists, you're the president of that as well. So for um, people who don't know, you're sort of like one of the known people in your field, you could say. Yeah. Well, actually, that's in the past, so I don't oh. know about today. So, <laughs> Fair so, point. Yeah, but yes, um, I my work, uh, basically crosses many uh, disciplines, not merely the behavioral sciences, but yeah. also many of the neurobiological sciences. The reason I wanted to talk to you today was that you are the original guy who proposed something called polyvagal theory, which linked sort of how our automatic nervous systems or autonomic nervous system mm -hmm. ties to social behaviors. And I just would love for everyone listening to hear what is polyvagal theory and why should they care about it. Mm -hmm. That's probably a great way to start the interview. 
Well, it's probably a good way, but it could take the whole interview. So let me, <laughs> let, let me just kind of uh, – it's a question that I'm always asked, and, and surprisingly, I, I never know how I'm going to answer it. Um, <laughs> but let's basically break it down to something quite simple. Uh, what can we learn from the evolution of, of our species? What can we learn from uh, how other animals, other vertebrates that preceded us behaved and functioned, especially from their autonomic nervous system? What can we learn? So what we learned really is that neural circuits were used by uh, very more primitive vertebrates to uh, basically shut down to make themselves appear inanimate. So it became a defense system. And then as uh, uh, vertebrates evolved, they developed systems to mobilize. And we know this in terms of our own words as fight or flight. And then what happened with mammals is that they had a newer autonomic nervous system that functionally got linked to the nerves that regulate their face and their voice. So basically they wear their heart in their voice and on their face and they communicate those cues to others. So once we start understanding about these changes in the autonomic nervous system, we start understanding what our, literally our neural platforms are for behavior. And I just want to basically give the main punchline here and that is, what we are, we are actually are a product of evolution. And through evolution, we didn't throw out everything. We repurposed it. And we used it for different purposes, and we changed it slightly. Uh, so we have in our body circuits that can be used for defense and circuits that can be used for social interactional behaviors. Those circuits for defense, unfortunately, have been misunderstood by most of uh, behavioral scientists, most of the clinical scientists as well, because we literally have two circuits of defense. We have the very popular one, fight and flight, but we also have a more ancient one, which is a shutdown, immobilization, become inanimate, death feigning. And this is the one that is triggered in individuals who are restrained and have no option to get out. So that these become responses to life threat. And what the polyvagal theory does, it explains a lot of these behaviors and physiological consequences, which are amazing number of physical health ailments, which we will discuss, that are, that co-occur with shifting into these different physiological states. So polyvagal theory informs us to understand our native biological reactions to safety cues and to danger cues. And I'm going to categorize another one, life-threatening cues. Uh, all right. This is exciting. Anyone who's listened to the show for a while knows I talk a lot about autonomic nervous system activation, heart rate variability yeah. training, uh, essentially turning off the fight or flight when it's not serving you. What you're teaching us and what you proposed a little more than 20 years ago now is that there's two systems, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you go a little bit deeper on the second system that doesn't help you run away from tigers? <laughs> The second system is what you see in in pet stores if you look at reptiles. They immobilize. They just don't move. They, they in a sense, are trying to become inanimate. And uh, reptiles have this capacity, and they will defecate, and they will stop breathing, and and they can do this for long periods of time because their metabolic demands are very low, and they don't need much oxygen. The problem is when mammals do this, our metabolic demands are great. We need lots of oxygen, and this can be potentially lethal. So the metaphor or the uh, urban myth that the person died out of fear is that the person's heart stopped with this mechanism, which is a through a vagal pathway. What I didn't quite under, uh, explain was that basically the polyvagal theory got its name because There were two different vagal pathways, and the different vagal pathways had different functional adaptive uh, capacities. So the the one that you're really asking me is immobilization as a defense, but it's not immobilization with voluntary, I'm going to sit still so I won't be eaten by the tiger. My body goes there. I don't tell it to go there. I don't want it to go there often. And this is really the consequences of people who have suffered you know, very severe trauma experiences or abuse experiences. Their body just shuts down. And psychologically, the part that resi- remains with them for decades is dissociation. They go someplace else. How common is that phenomena in the general population? Well, it's... You know, as I um, start to uh, use, in a sense, the the theory to decode the behaviors of people, I am totally shocked 
at the number of people who functionally have lived a good portion of their lives in dissociative states and have been unaware of it. Of course they're unaware because they're dissociated. (laughs) And and the issue is um, part of our society has to deal with uh, telling people not to feel their body to, quote, get over it, live with it, proceed with it. And also, a lot of the medical treatment models are really models of dampening the feedback loops from our autonomic nervous system that support our health, growth, and restoration. Because sometimes those signals are telling us there's bad bad stuff going on. Uh, so I think it's quite common. And, and what I, I often say in my talks, I say that what if... Um, Descartes was misinterpreted. What if he didn't really say, je pense donc je suis? Now you're going to hear my horrible French accent, but you're in Canada, you probably articulate it better. Um, but he said, I think, therefore I am. What if he had said, je me sens donc je suis? I feel my body, I feel myself, therefore I am. And, and I selected, if you know French, I selected the refle- reflexive verb, which is not to feel, to touch but to feel oneself. And that is even missing from our language in English. We don't have a different word for feeling object versus feeling ourselves. So we get confused with our use of words. But what if he had said, I feel myself, therefore I am. Now ask anyone who has suffered from severe trauma experiences or abuse, they don't feel their bodies. That is what's what goes. So, so um, I, I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do uh, an armchair diagnosis, which you probably get at every cocktail party, but not really an armchair diagnosis. But I, I'll just relay a, a personal anecdote mm, that yeah. I think supports this. But just tell me if it does. Um, I did a, a a personal growth seminar a long time ago, mm. more than 15 years ago, and uh, I was uh, working with a very talented transpersonal uh, kind mm. of kind of psychologist and. I was feeling really, really uncomfortable about the whole thing. And basically, she said, well, you have to be feeling something. I said, yeah, I'm feeling pretty angry about this whole thing. So I'm, I'm feeling just fine. Thank mm. you very much. And then she said, well, then why do you want to leave the room? Like, why are you uncomfortable? I said, I don't really know, but it's because I'm pissed off. And after a day of this, kind of arguing with me, finally she said, is there some other feeling in your body? And I said, yeah, my stomach feels a little weird. And, and she looks at me and she goes, yeah, that feeling, that's called fear. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had I had internalized that well mm-hmm. if there's no reason to be afraid therefore I'm not afraid therefore I'll just ignore all that stuff mm-hmm. and and since then I've learned not to ignore those things because there's actually value in the signal is this what we're talking about or is that something else well it's part of it so okay. in in my modeling there's a concept that I call neuroception okay. and that's the detection of risk or or danger in the environment and this is not perception perception is a cognition and that's what you were involved in you weren't cognitively perceiving anything but you were your body was responding right so that's neuroception in my terminology your nervous system evaluated risk and said okay something not good is happening so you have these bodily feelings now the word i'm tending to use now is that these are now implicit feelings and now you're stuck in the world of having how do you deal with implicit feelings well you try to get explicit language and activity And in a sense, that becomes the whole theme of all trauma therapies that are successful. And that is having people learn to understand their implicit feelings and to contain them and to kind of regulate them with explicit or voluntary behavior. So we'll see this in other types of therapies, which I'm sure you'll ask me. But what you had somewhere in that room, your body was picking up cues, your nervous system. Not necessarily your conscious awareness. It's not even kinky because yeah. <laughs> very, uh, a very small part of our sensory reactions are actually dealing with conscious awareness. Our brain's a big, big organ and it's processing information even at high levels. And through evolution, we evaluate risk not through an internal decision of is that dangerous, is it not dangerous, should I get into that car, should I not get into our car? Those decisions were made very rapidly with a biological response that we then acted with. And what happened to you is you got a biological response and you wanted to act with it or not act with it. You got into that dialogue. Well, the, the working theory for what happened uh, is that I was actually born with the, uh, the umbilical cord around my neck and mm-hmm. I was posterior. So I had substantial birth trauma. And 
what what was going on in the room was other people in the workshop were dealing with their own birth stuff yeah. and that made me it made my nervous system anyway feel really uncomfortable okay. because there was a survival level threat at least it thought that i, oh. I knew there wasn't but the okay. fact that you know it and you feel it they didn't match right okay let, let me you gave me enough information for me to deconstruct <laughs> it uh-huh. so rather than say birth trauma okay because that carries with it all kinds of you know psychoanalytic sure. uh, pre-psychoanalytic discussions, let's say you had a hypoxic response. There you go. Okay. Now, the body's response to hypoxia is life threat. It's shutting Mm -hmm. down. Now, phylogenetically and also developmentally, how do we deal if our body starts to shut down? There's only one thing we can do. We mobilize because if we mobilize, since the autonomic nervous system is hierarchically organized, and we'll get back to that... uh, as long as we mobilize, our nervous system can't shut down. So you find out that people who have trauma experiences are often doing risk-taking behaviors and high-activity behaviors. And so it's because their body knows that if they sit still, they're now vulnerable to shutting down. Wow. Okay, you got it a little because yeah. you, you are a mobilizer. <laughs> and, a little bit. Yeah. And, and the issue is our body, in fact, if you start asking questions about people based upon the trauma history, there are terms you can see even in their body, and these are words that you'll probably come up with from other people, tightly wrapped, you know, in terms of where the <laughs> muscles are tight, and, yeah. and you might say, oh, that's an anxious type person. Or you'd hear in their voice, they would be taking very few deep exhalations or slow exhalations. And the reason they wouldn't be exhaling air slowly is that that would put them in a more of this vagal calm state, and they're scared of that. So, so let, let's talk about the vagal nerve and the yeah. vagal response, because I think a lot of people listening, and most people are either at work or driving their cars right now yeah. uh, who hear this, they might not understand what, what is the vagal nerve, what is a vagal tone. Can you yeah. walk through that, where it comes from? Sure. Okay. So the vagus is a cranial nerve. What that means is the nerve that comes out of the brain. Now, there's, there is a whole important history here because it goes out of the brain, but it regulates many, many organs in our body. So it is actually conveying information from the brain to your heart, to your bronchi, to your gut. And so these physiological responses you are often getting are often driven by brain signals. And this is very important to understand because most of medicine basically treats organs as the, as the area of the disease and not neural regulation of the organ as the, at least the uh, antecedent for the disease. Because in medical school, people are not trained much about neural regulation of organs. In fact, this is one question I always ask physicians who are in my workshops. I say, how much time did you spend studying the sensory pathways of the vagus? <laughs> and the answer is, you know, they may have heard about it, but they certainly didn't study it. Now, the vagus is this big cranial nerve that leaves the brain, comes out of our, our, our back of our head, and it has 80% of its fibers are sensory, and they're basically running a surveillance team of our internal organs. And they're sending this information up to our brainstem. Our brainstem is doing a little bit of interpretation and then sending uh, signals upward to higher brain structures, saying it's okay to attend, you don't have to be hypervigilant, you don't have to run to the bathroom, you don't have to eat. Uh, it's telling you, can I interact? Or do I have to protect myself? So the signals are being interpreted and then they're creating portals that allow cognitive and affective systems to work. Now, what the polyvagal theory does, and I'm actually going to go back to your earlier question because it's very important here, and I'm going to link it back to you as a baby. Uh, I have done work in obstetrics and pediatrics. Uh, I did about 20 years of research in that area measuring the heart rate patterns of babies and fetuses because the heart rate patterns of the baby and the fetus was conveying information about vagal function. So, wow. so you could actually start assaying literally with a physiological marker how much vagal activity was occurring and i was really felt i was 
you know, knew what I was doing. And this goes back into the early 1990s. And I was very pleased with having developed new methods to extract from heart rate variability an extraordinarily reliable index of the vagal influence. Yes. But I, but I have to tell you, there's only one point you probably don't know. And that is I'm the first person to ever quantify heart rate variability. Really? <laughs> yes. I, I do it all the time with clients. I, I'm an advisor yeah. to the Heart Math Institute. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I did so, not know that. Stephen, so it, congratulations. It back, well, you know... <laughs> That's another story. And that went back into the 1960s. And it was a period of time that when, you were, when I was talking about heart rate variability, people would say, That's, you have heart rate variability in your subject, Steve, because you're just a bad scientist. <laughs> if, if, if you were a good scientist, the heart would just be beating constantly, waiting for a stimulus, and then it would respond. People were so naive about neural yeah. function. And I was trying to explain that even in the, in the early 1900s, they were identifying vagal fibers that were cardio-inhibitory, whether or not they had a respiratory rhythm. So this whole focus on respiratory sinus arrhythmia as a functional index of the new myelinated vagus, which I'll get to, was very important. So back to the baby work. So in, um, I guess it would be the 1970s, 80s, and up to the early 90s, I was studying babies. And I felt that heart rate variability, respiratory science arrhythmia, was this wonderful index of how healthy the baby was. And I published a paper in a, in a major journal called Pediatrics showing that preterm babies had less uh, respiratory science arrhythmia, which I called vagal tone, than full-term babies. And this was really what was going on. And I got a letter, and this is, of course, before the time of email, and I got a letter, and it was from a neonatologist. And the neonatologist said, um, I really liked your paper. However, when I was in medical school, I was taught that the vagus can kill you. Perhaps too much of a good thing is bad. I had that letter, and I was really perplexed because I knew too much of a good thing wasn't bad. That was the wrong understanding. And I also knew that babies who had the, uh, I had to, I mean, I actually backtrack from him. I have to tell you first, I morphed into his perspective because never, never argue with people unless you understand their perspective. Yeah. And his perspective was that as a neonatologist, apneas and bradycardias, the cessation of breathing and the slowing of heart rate were clinical indicators of bad stuff, high risk. And they were vagal. Got it. Okay. But I was talking about these rhythmicities in heart rate supporting homeostatic function, which were also vagal. So, so what we're saying there is that there's these two different things that yeah. the, the, yeah. vag the vagus nerve can do. Okay. Well, the nerve can do, but that doesn't make any sense, does it? So I basically said, okay, this is a vagal paradox. Now I have to figure this out. And I figured it out by basically studying everything I could find about the vagus. And that didn't help me until I went into studying comparative neuroanatomy. And that told me about the evolutionary transitions. And what you find out is you may have one vagal nerve but it's a, it's a conduit with different fibers. So the conceptualization was wrong. You had to think that there are different fibers and they come from different parts of the brain. Ah. Uh, and the so-called good vagal fibers, which by the way, represent only 3% of the entire vagal fibers in the vagus, are myelinated, come from an area in the brainstem called nucleus ambiguous, and interact in the brainstem with the area that controls your facial muscles, your laryngeal muscles, that control vocalizations, facial expressivity, and even the muscles in your middle ear that control listening to human voice. So, so for people who don't know myelination, myelination is what happens when the body insulates nerves with a layer of fat. Mm -hmm. And that allows the nerves to carry electricity faster or with less resistance than mm -hmm. normal nerves. So. What you're saying is that the part of the vagus nerve that allows us to basically move our face in here and, and do some other yeah. key communications is better or faster than the rest of the nerve. Well, Am I saying that right? Close. Okay. But let's separate and let's conceptualize. In the brainstem, you have a column. Mm -hmm. And a column of fibers or a column of cells that are the cell source origin for all the striated muscles of the face and head. That includes middle ear muscles, muscles of ingestion, muscles of facial expressivity, muscles of the larynx, 
And those are striated muscles. And they communicate in the brainstem with the area that controls that myelinate vagus. So they're not necessarily, they're not vagal, but they're part of a vagal complex. Got it. So they they work together. But they work together. And now let me give you a little side view on that. If you think about the evolution of mammalian species, I'm going to ask you this question because you like factoids. (laughs) And we can even get... uh, So the question is, if you found a fossil, how would you know it was a mammal? Um, that's that's an interesting question. I think we look at bone structure for the most part, but uh, I don't know. I'm not a fossilologist. Okay. <laughs> so the the critical feature is whether the middle ear bones have broken off the jawbone. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Okay. Now, that's what mammals have. Middle ear bones break off the jawbone. They become the ossicle chain that enables us to hear low volume higher frequency voices in background noises. Only if we have neural tone to those middle ear structures. If we don't have neural tone to those middle ear structures, we become hypersensitive to low frequency sounds because low frequency sounds go through bone conduction and they signal predator. Ah. Okay. Okay. So what you start seeing is if this myelinate vagus and the facial muscles aren't working, people tend to have auditory hypersensitivities and have difficulty understanding human voice in background settings. So, so then what do you do about that? Ah, that's, well, you, you can rehabilitate it. That's actually kind of what I've been working on, and I have a couple of clinical trials on that. But the cues, what you have to do is basically use the principles of neuroception, which are that cues of safety have to trigger an inhibition of defense. So what are cues of safety? I'll tell you, they're not having teachers carrying guns. Those are not, <laughs> those are, uh, those are not cues of safety. Cues of safety are intonation of voice, prosodic voices, mother ease. If you have a dog or a cat, you know how to talk to them. You use a prosodic intonation of voice. Our neuroception, our nervous system detects that as a cue of safety and inhibits those limbic reactive structures. So talking doesn't always calm people down, but talking in a prosodic way and listening will. Interesting. So just speaking in that way and mm-hmm. listening and being spoken to yeah. in that way can yeah. affect oh, yeah. uh, your very core nervous system. Absolutely. Wow. So one of the, uh, let's say, field experiments that I run when I travel is to watch toddlers with their parents. And the kids are always screaming when the father has the toddler. Mm-hmm. And then the toddler is brought over to the mother, and the mother looks, reaches, and says a word, and the toddler's fine. Wow, and it's the tone of voice. Tone of voice, the gestures, the complex set of cues. While the father's voice is lower, especially when they get irritated in the airport, it gets louder and lower, more right. monotone, and that in the body is a trigger of defense, will trigger defense. Wow. Okay, so the issue is why did this occur through evolution, and what you what <laughs> it occurred? Okay, so there's a big set of questions. People say, well, you know, if you're an evolutionary psychologist, you you basically focus on selection on behavior, but if you're an evolutionary biologist, you don't really give it, you don't care about the behavior. So the issue is, as the cerebrum, as the cortex in the brain got larger, it put pressure on the jawbone, middle ear bones broke off. Wow. Okay. Now, what did that do in terms of adaptive function? It enabled uh, mammals to have a acoustic frequency band to to interact that would not be detected by the predators, which were reptiles. Wow. Okay. Second, even it enabled them to detect in their conspecific of their own species whether they were safe to come close to or were they going to have a fight. Now, we know this, so when people talk to us, we know whether they're, you know, friendly <laughs> or not. I mean, you, you have enough. And look, you, you make a living interviewing people on Spectrum, so right? It, it's really funny. My kids are in a Waldorf school. They're, yeah. they're six and eight. 
and the teachers walk around talking like this and this yeah. and, and it drives me insane. In fact, I think it drives every every normal parent insane. But you just explained why because they, they say, oh, well, it makes the kids calm. This is what yeah. works for kids. Yeah. You're saying they're enhancing the kids vagal tone they're, by using those voices. It, yeah, they're enabling <laughs> they're enabling the vagal tone to come back on board and that will support resilience because that vagal, wow. that vagal tone, the vagal tone of the myelinate vagus enables your sympathetic nervous system and the other vagal circuit, which is going below your diaphragm, not to be recruited for defense. So the agenda in creating a healthy world or life is to enable your autonomic nervous system to support health, growth, and restoration and not to recruit it for defense. So... Let's say that, that a good portion of people listening to this have some problem, some degree of problem with their vagal tone. I'm certainly one of them, given just my birth history and just all the, the stuff that I've, I've dealt with. I used to weigh 300 pounds and had all kinds of other like, um, problems that I've hacked. What would, you, what would you advise someone to do if they said, all right, I want a better vagal response. Like, like I'd, I'd like to be healthier. I'd like to be more resilient. How do I do that as an adult? Okay, but... I mean, you're basically giving me lots of information that I can work with before I go to that. Okay. So um, if your vagal regulation isn't working right, you will gravitate to try to regulate vagal tone through different mechanisms. One of them is ingestion. So, and you, and ingestion utilizes the same features or same nerves that social behavior uses. So you supplement, ah. but it doesn't have vocalizations with it. It doesn't have uh, touch. It doesn't have gesture. But it's an attempt, like sucking or chewing gum, uh, are attempts for the body to try to recruit this integrated, and I call it integrated social engagement system, which includes that vagal activity. So singing. Now, if you want to deal with this from a more proactive way, aspects like singing, uh, playing wind instruments, which force you to exhale slowly, okay. which and the vagal efferent action of this newer myelinate vagus happens during exhalation. So now you understand the neural mechanisms underlying pranayama yoga. That's is, is something that's helped me and something I recommend for a lot of people. Okay. Because during exhalation, the vagal efferents work. But more than that, when you push the diaphragm down, the sensory part of the vagus is stimulated that potentiates those vagal motor fibers working better. And you're also, when you do breathing, and part of pranayama has to do with stimulation of the face. And that's where sensory afferents of the facial muscles uh, of actually it's cranial nerve seven, which is the facial nerve and cranial nerve five, which is trigeminal, which deals with, well, when you go to the dentist, that's the way you know about trigeminal. The sensory part that goes into the area of the brainstem that regulates the myelinated vagus. So we're always trying to get that system to work because that system down-regulates the defense modes. It down-regulates sympathetic activity and it down, and it protects that sub-diaphragmatic other vagus from going into defense. It enables it to support health, growth, and restoration. And in your world, facilitate digestion. One of the other things that I, I first learned about almost 10 years ago was sticking your face in ice water for you know a, a minute or so as a way to basically calm uh, the vagal nerve uh, what's your take on that okay so you're recruiting an ancient dive reflex yes okay but there's a problem with that because part of the dive reflex recruits the unmyelinated vagus oh interesting it's because the at least in uh out, okay in in certain animals so it, it has to do with the slope of the bradycardia how fast does the heart rate go down that's part, you know, some people who have been uh, drowning victims who haven't really drowned, they've been resuscitated after being in cold water for more than 20 minutes. It's because the body went into that state. It went into the uh, this death feigning state. So the issue is maybe, maybe not with rice water. If you get, okay. it might be helpful to monitor your heart rate to see how much it drops. If it drops down into 40 beats per minute, I'd be a little bit concerned. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But if, you know, you get it down to low 60s, so you, you work out. So what's your basal heart rate? Oh, it's around 70. 
And when you wake up in the morning, do you measure it then, not before you stand up? It's usually around 63. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's good. And when you were heavy, what was it? I didn't measure it back then. Yeah. But you can start seeing the shifts, especially early morning. Uh, it will drop down. And one concern is doing this ice water early morning, I mean, like five or six in the morning, might be a little dangerous because there are circadian rhythms of yes. vulnerability. So uh, vulnerability for heart attacks, which, again, are misunderstood because some of the heart attacks may be sudden death, which is potentially a vagal phenomenon and not a arrhythmia. Wow. What could we do to reduce the incidence of Southern death with this knowledge? Because people listening are all like, okay, what can I do for me? And some of them have vagal issues they don't know about, others mm. don't. But how do, we, how do we hack that? Okay, the, the hacking of this, and, the, and actually it's a reasonable word, is to understand <laughs> what are the cues that our nervous system craves. Okay. Really craves. And our nervous system craves uh, certain features of safety, and they happen to be away from low frequency background noises because that triggers predator um we like to hear prosodic voices that's why there was a a wonderful in the 60s were wonderful in terms of folk music because right. they were social and people would sing songs about the most horrible things occurring in the world and everyone would be smiling because of the articulation the prosodic features of the voice because we would feel good it was empowerment of of being social and this is different than music that uses uh, military marches and patriotic activities, which are mobilizing with affiliation, and they are energetic. But folk music without bass you know, be, uh, uh, has the frequency bands of a female, and that triggers us to feel comfortable and safe. So acoustic properties are extremely important. And if you want to go back to the concept of schools, schools tend to be very noisy because of ventilation systems, highways, mm -hmm. and a variety of other issues. So we are not creating the contextual environment that will enable the autonomic nervous system to feel safe enough to downregulate the defense systems. And I mentioned defense systems. One is the fight flight. The other one is just shutting down. And I want to emphasize one point. Since you had that history of hypoxia, the threshold for you shutting down might have been lower for you than other people. And so the strategies that your nervous system implicitly tried to implement may have been strategies of more mobilization to keep you out of that. It, it, would, it would make sense. And now, this is going to be maybe an inflammatory question, and I apologize in advance, but what are we doing with cesarean section when that becomes the most common surgery performed on women, which it is today? Well, I, I think you probably need to um, invite my wife on, the, uh, on your show. My wife is Sue Carter, and she is the scientist who discovered the relationship between oxytocin and social behavior. Oh, okay. Um, introduce us, please. I would love to talk with her. <laughs> and she's also director of the Kinsey Institute, and that's why I'm here at Kinsey at Indiana University. Okay. Basically, the, the cesareans are disrupting the normal birth process. Yeah. And the issues are really in terms, not that cesareans, there isn't a place for cesareans. There is. But the issue of having them be, in a sense, elective or voluntary or scheduling your delivery, it becomes a serious question about how we view early development. Um, as a scientist, what I had learned, and again, it's dec a couple decades since I studied the literature in this, was that if a baby, um, if delivery was started, if, 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 I wouldn't say delivery was started, if, if there were contractions already starting to occur and the process of delivery was starting, then cesarean was less um, disruptive to normal developmental processes. What Sue is most interested in is not merely the cesarean, but the use of supplemental drugs, uh, artificial oxytocin called pitocin, that increases uterine contractility without softening the cervix. So these are drugs that are being used, and the consequence on development aren't really understood, and actually that's what she studies. She's studying the epigenetic effects of administering uh, oxytocin to an animal model. Wow, uh, that, that'll be a fascinating yep. interview. Yeah. My, uh, my first book was written with my wife, who's a Karolinska trained physician. Uh, wow. 
uh, her name is Dr. Lana, and uh, it was about what do you do before and during pregnancy to have healthier kids and, and looking at the quality of the birth as a factor in the resilience and even the IQ of your kids. Mm. There's, there's studies on that. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that you shouldn't have um, a cesarean. It's that you shouldn't voluntarily have one. If there's a medical reason, do it. <laughs> if there isn't a medical reason, don't do it. Yeah. Right? Well, part of it, it, it all depends on what your outcome variables are. If your outcome variable is mortality, then people build a reasonable argument. If the outcome variable is the developmental trajectory, then we have a lot of other issues to discuss. And these same things occur, and, and this is even a, a more delicate question to discuss, and that is about preterm babies, how, pre, how preterm uh, is, is uh, survival, because they're doing extraordinarily well with very small babies in terms of cognitive function and development. They're not doing so well with those same kids in terms of social emotional regulation. And you think that's all, or at least mostly, vagal nerve related? I think so, because when I uh, meet the parents and they are often professionals and they start telling me the symptomatology, it sounds very similar, you know, auditory hypersensitivities, which is part of the social engagement system, flat facial affect, often ingestive problems earlier in life, difficulty coordinating sucking, swallowing, and breathing. These are all the parts that are linked to uh, stimulating that myelinate vagus to soothe and calm us. So it's not like they're independent, but the information is out there. And since your wife is from Sweden, I imagine, over yep. so in, in the Scandinavian countries, they have wonderful databases. Uh, so a lot of these issues can be studied there. In this country, we don't have these large national registries, so we can't really evaluate what they can do in both. I know in uh, Denmark, excuse me, in in the UK and in Denmark, I know they do this as well. It's uh, it's one of the benefits of having a national registry uh, mm. of you know, what's going on. That's for sure. Well, speaking of what's going on, we've got things like PTSD, autism, depression, anxiety that are all at record levels. Yeah. And you've tied all these back to at kind of an unknown uh, variation in the vagal nerve. Uh, what, what, what are the implications of this, like, like for society? The implications are that there are core dysfunctions that reside or get expressed in many types of disorders. And, and it doesn't mean that those are dealing with those core dysfunctions will, in a sense, cure the disorder. It means that we can work on them to optimize the quality of life. So virtually any type of mental disorder, any type of severe health disorder, gets manifested in depressed vagal activity, but also gets manifested in depressed regulation of those striate muscles of the face and the head. Because these are brainstem structures and What's on top of the brainstem is this massive uh, array of neural circuits that get manifested in many different functions and pathologies. So if we look at autism or you look at schizophrenia, and even if you look at HIV, HIV has a neurotoxicity or neurotoxicity yeah. on the facial nerve, and actually they have lower vagal tone. And their faces wow. don't work as well. And this results in the consequence that caregivers to HIV feel that their, that their patients, their loved ones, don't love them because their faces are not expressive. Wow. And they feel exploited. This is the same thing if you talk to many parents who have autistic children. They say, I love my child, but my child doesn't love me. And what they're saying is the child's not asking about them, not expressive, not showing empathy because the face is not working. And these are lower brainstem structures that potentially can be optimized through providing cues of what I call cues of safety. But they can be exercised through things like singing, um, breath control, learning how to breathe, playing wind instruments. And if we think again, what happens to our, happened to our school systems? All these things were pulled out of it. You know, the opportunities yeah. for singing and even play. Play becomes this reciprocity. And one thing I didn't discuss is that when we have this wonderful social engagement system with a myelinated vagus, then our sympathetic nervous system does go in fight flight and we can use it for play. Wow. So we can mobilize, but then we look at a person and we say, hey, 
that's a friend. And you calm down. So if you play ball or anything and you accidentally hit someone, throw an elbow and they fall on the ground, if you turn to pick up the person, they said, it's part of the game. I'm fine. But if you walk away, the repair didn't occur. The facial interaction wasn't there to turn off that sympathetic defense. Uh, that's, that's pretty incredible stuff. Given that the vagal nerve is at least 3% of it, yeah. <laughs> it is so fundamentally important to human resilience, which is at its core yeah. what I mean when I talk about bulletproof, yeah. the state of yeah. high performance. Yeah. Like, like I, I can take whatever the world is going to bring to me and I can right. handle it, do what I want to do. Yeah. So how do I exercise this right. aside from singing and playing a wind instrument? <laughs> like, can I run electricity over it? Can I shine oh. lasers on it? Okay, I mean. <laughs> so I actually, I actually listened to, uh, I got prepared. Yes, yesterday I listened to you with talking to the person who was doing uh, TMS. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have magnets at home. Yeah. The, the beauty of this circuit is it's not done that way. Darn. <laughs> okay, because you can trigger it that way, but to maintain it, you have to maintain it with social interaction. Okay. Because so more, more Facebook then. Less face. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Uh, it's bad enough on Skype, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's bad enough on Skype. But yeah, what, what I, our body requires uh, the presence of another. That's who we are. That's who mammals are. And even though talking on the phone is helpful, Skype is helpful, uh, Facebook is probably helpful, it's not a total replacement for the knowledge that that person is there to touch and to care for. And we, again, the, the principle we have to always emphasize is that we as mammals did not evolve to take care of ourselves. We evolved uh, with the help of others, and we continue to need the help of others to maintain our life. And so even though culture says, take care of yourself, do all these things, that's not really what our body says. Our body says, find good friends, have a good community, have good support, because that's what our body is really asking for. So the, the old line, we get by with a little help from our friends, is, is pretty accurate. True, true. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, all right, so more, more social engagement is, is pretty important. And uh, let, let me interrupt. Okay. Social engagement, if you want it, <laughs> enforced social <laughs> engagement is, is threat. So, uh, fair point. Okay. So the issue is that you have to invite it. And with that, there, there, I want to change terms. Like we use words like caregiver implies that it's a unidirectional event. And caregivers burn out when it is unidirectional. That was the example with the HIV or with the autism. Um, because caregiving is bidirectional. We give and we love it when people can be good hosts, uh, not good hosts, uh, good recipients. So it's very, because it creates a reciprocity that makes us feel good. Right, so it's that reciprocal loop that sort of gets set up. Yeah. What, what's the role of gratitude in all of this? Well, again, we're dealing with words. And, and I'm going to actually throw it back to you. And I want okay. you to tell me what you mean by gratitude. Well, I, I've, my understanding of gratitude is that it, it's actually a felt state. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and it's one of the mechanisms that I use to turn off what, what I perceive as the fight or flight response. Yeah. It may be turning off some more lower level defense oh. mechanisms. But when, when you look at the world as, wow, like I'm grateful for all this amazing stuff in it, uh, it tends to make you sleep better. It tends to make okay. you happier. It tends to make you nicer. You're in a, what I would call a ventral vagal state. And okay. Fact, is, yeah. okay. So that's the myelinated vagus. I actually gave a talk for Compassion Care, which is a group out at Stanford, and it was on basically ancient practices as portals of vagal regulation. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have to hear this talk. Is it on video somewhere? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Okay. We'll um, find that and we'll link to it in the show yeah. notes. But okay. it, basically it says that through chant and prayer and even posture shifts, we were recruiting the, this vagal system. And that was, in a sense, giving people uh, states of compassion or, in a sense, a state that did not re- uh, buffer them from being defensive. So let me, let me kind of put a cap on this because we have to understand that the removal of threat is not the same as safety. Okay. And we live in a society that says we're going to remove threat and you're going to be safe without providing what our body needs, which are cues of safety. And when you're in this state of gratitude, you are bathed in the sense of the cues of safety, whether you're 
generating yourself or you're in an environment with others. And when you're in that state, you're not recruiting any of these defenses. You're not perceiving the world differently. You perceive the world differently based on your physiological state. And when you're in a state that is being literally protected from defense by this myelinated vagus, then you won't defend. Then you will be uh, recruit those defense signals uh, systems. So, so a, a practice of of recognizing and cultivating the sensation of gratitude mm-hmm. um, can trigger the the neurological experience that that it's that's a safe world, yeah. which which then is going to keep you out of a sympathetic the fight or flight state. Yeah. And it's also going to enhance the myelination of your vagus nerve. Well, maybe the it might, but more important than that is you don't potentially you may not need to myelinate anymore. You just okay. need to enable that circuit to work. So the issue is how do you optimize what you have? I mean, I think that's part of your theme. Heck yeah. <laughs> and so it doesn't mean you have to rewire. Uh, it may it means that you may have to turn off defense. So what the model of polyvagal theory is, it's a hierarchical model, and this is really the real take-home point. It's a hierarchical model that articulates three different circuits that occurred through evolution. One is this myelinate vagus that's linked to our social engagement system. The second is a sympathetic fight-or-flight system, mobilization system. And the third is a shutting-down system. But those systems that I talked about for defense just now are not solely there for defense. Our sympathetic nervous system is what makes us feel good, energetic. Our subdiaphragmatic vagus is not a shutdown system when we're safe. It enables digestion to occur efficiently. It enables our bowels to work well. And the symptom, of course, of what you're going to, what you know already, is that all the features of modern society get manifested in our bowels. And what that is saying, it gets manifested in an immobilization with fear reaction. So our, if we're mobilized, we are constipated. If we're immobilized, we just defecate inappropriately. So the yeah. notion of maintaining these endogenous normal rhythms is the responsibility of this myelinated vagus that enables the other parts of the, of the autonomic nervous system to regulate our homeostasis. Wow, that, that's that's some powerful stuff. I, I've seen in, in the book On Combat, uh, which is a, a famous book studying first responders and people in war, uh, where uh, people at the World Trade Center, the firefighters, yeah. a, a good portion of them actually had that 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 problem of just defecation yeah. without without that yeah. and, and felt huge amounts of shame because very few people understand this even though it's not a, a conscious thing it, it was it's, it's this response right and i link that to yeah. rape victims who also feel great shame because it's the same circuit that's going on that subdiaphragmatic vagus is immobilizing them under restraint or rape and the physiological interpretation of that implicit feeling ends up being shame Wow. Okay. So it's completely wired. It has nothing to do with our rational thinking at all, yet we feel it, and then we try to rationalize it, and it gets worse. Yeah, well, this is what I talk about, our big brain trying to make sense out of all this information. And and we have to be informed by our biology. So so where I've learned a lot in, in this interview. This is one of my favorite interviews ever. But I'm I'm still stuck on uh, okay. What do I do with all this amazing knowledge now? I, I've got I, I'll keep doing pranayama or art of living or some sort of breathing exercise. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to pick up the flute, but who knows? Maybe <laughs> uh, I can I can keep cultivating gratitude. Uh, okay. uh, what are the other I, 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 I can give you one basic metaphor, and that is to feel safe in the arms of another. There you go. That is uh, that okay. is great advice. Okay. okay. Now I will modify that. To to uh, to say to feel safe in the arms of another appropriate mammal, <laughs> not a turtle. I got you. Right, and the reason is that some people really don't feel safe with people, but they feel very safe with their dogs. Oh, this explains the dog and, and maybe the cat thing. Although, who really likes cats? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I've had two phases. I was a cat person initially, and now I'm a dog person. And the dog part is actually linked to having real children because of their neediness and their uh, reciprocity. They need the social 
uh, feedback from you. Cats are extraordinarily independent. And Very perceptive. Yeah, but dogs, you change the tone of your voice. And they're, they're down on the ground and you say, basically saying, why are you hurting me? Mm-hmm. And, and so the point is they're, they're explained to you in their behavior, their neuroception of the vocalization cues that they're getting. They're teaching us so much. And so when we can appreciate their vulnerability and love them and appreciate the vulnerability of our children and love them and appreciate the vulnerability of our spouses and friends and love them, then we're safe. Then we're good. Wow. So it goes right down to being vulnerable and accepting vulnerability in others. Yeah. That, wow. That's, that's some profound stuff. Now, I, I suspect you might have answered one of, uh, one of these, these questions I'm about to ask or, or one of the things I'm going to ask you. But given all the stuff you know, uh, and this is a question I've asked on every, every episode of Bulletproof Radio, uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and you didn't know anything about their background and they said, look, I want to, I want to perform better at being a human. Like, like I want to kick ass at everything I decide I'm going to do. What are the three most important things I should know? Okay. We, we will we'll try something on this. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what I'm going to say. That's right. Well, what I would start off by saying, the most important thing we have to understand is that our autonomic nervous system functions in a hierarchical way. Okay. And what that means is that sometimes uh, we have to understand how our body's been challenged in certain situations. We have to... Uh, I, I, what I would say is that we have to become very aware of what our body is doing, our body's responses. So like your description of your gut responding in that room. Um, if you had understood it from a polyvagal model, from the hierarchy of our autonomic nervous system, and you start getting a subdiaphragmatic gut response, and you really wanted to manage it, you would then say, maybe my body shouldn't be in this room, or maybe I need to be near someone who makes me feel safe. Maybe my spouse, maybe someone else. So what, what the most important thing, I, I guess the, the words I would now use is you need to respect your body. And if you, meaning that your body is reacting to situations and you need to understand that it's, re, that it's reacting. And this goes back to more of the attributes of neuroception. In neuroception, we don't know the cues that our body is responding to. But we know that our bodies responded. And if we respect the fact that our bodies responded, we can do good things for our body. We can honor our body. We can move it to a safer place because we know what cues are necessary. So we need it to be a quieter place, uh, need to be with supportive people. Okay. So I have more I have to answer, or is that okay? was that was that two or was that three? <laughs> well, who knows? I, I basically it, <laughs> it, it's going to be this integration of understanding the hierarchy of our autonomic okay. nervous system, uh, um, realizing that under neuroception our, we are aware of our body's responses, but not of the cues. So it becomes more of a body scanning. And the third one would be to kind of honor our body's responses and not to, in a sense. Uh, denigrate them and say it's not important i'll get over it got it that's uh, uh that's a great summary wow i can tell you i don't think any of those answers i've heard before and they're all very very wise so, so thank you for thank you for sharing that i was i was expecting something unusual and you definitely delivered it well thank you uh stephen porges uh, the the father polyvagal uh, theory uh, thank you for being on the show where can people find out more about either your research or your practice like, like is there a way people who are interested in learning more about this can find you well i have a web page it's stephenporges.com and it base it has uh, a list of where my talks will be and it also okay. has published interviews and a bibliography and there's also going to be a web page at Kinsey. There is one now, but it's not well developed with my materials on it. Awesome. We will link to both of those pages, of, including okay. the Kinsey one, if you'd like. So okay. people can just come to the show notes or okay. look for the email with this podcast. Okay. okay. And actually, there's quite a few um, um, talks on YouTube. So people might, if, you know, if, they, if they like more, of, want more of this, uh, they can find it on YouTube. I, I suspect you'll find that there are a lot of people who listen yeah. to Bulletproof Radio who are, are thinking, oh, wait, this either applies to me or it applies to someone in the world mm. very close to me. 
So just having an understanding of what our environment does to our nervous system is, is a very core thing to, to being a, a fully functioning human. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that you'll find some people interested Great. in your work because it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, well, thank you very much, David. Thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio, and I look forward to maybe meeting you someday in person. Look forward to it. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. I learned to cook in a way that most people don't. I started looking at every single meal, designing and engineering the meal, not to make me lose weight or just to taste really good, although those were part of the plan. It was to give me a food high so that when I was done eating, I would just feel amazing. Bulletproof is partly the art about how to cook food that makes you have more power. It's about having energy-dense foods, nutrient-dense foods that don't have things in them that make you weak. The Bulletproof Roadmap tells you how to do this, and Bulletproof the Cookbook tells you how to make it taste amazing so you can learn how to do this cooking in your own home. There's 125 recipes that help you kick more ass every day. You'll feel the difference in your brain in your very first meal. Go to bulletproofcookbook.com and I'll give you a big discount and free shipping right now. Head on over to bulletproofcookbook.com to get all of this goodness and start doing it today. In fact, if you have a garden, I'll even tell you how to use things straight out of the garden. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.